Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In the wake of the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, selective colleges and their admissions practices have received a lot of scrutiny. Does going to a highly selective college affect long-term outcomes? How much preference are legacy applicants given? To what extent does socioeconomic background influence your chances of admission? How can highly selective colleges improve social mobility and diversify the American elite? Fortunately, a new paper, Diversifying Society's Leaders, The Determinants and Causal Effects of Admission to Highly Selective Private Colleges, by Raj Chetty, David Deming, and John Friedman, sheds light on these questions. The paper's full of interesting findings. So on this episode, two of the study's authors, David Deming and John Friedman, join the podcast to help break it down. David Deming is the academic dean and Isabel and Scott Black Professor of Political Economy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And John Friedman is the Breiger Family Distinguished Professor of Economics and International and Public Affairs and the Economics Department Chair at Brown University. He's also a founding co-director of Opportunity Insights at Harvard University. David Deming, John Friedman, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Let's start out with what might be the toughest question of the day. One paper, five years of work, 125 pages. John, can you summarize it in about 90 seconds? I'll do my best. So we're interested in who's attending these most selective private colleges in the country and why that matters. And so on the first part of that, what we show is that even relative to what you would expect based on who's getting high test scores or other academic credentials in the country, There are a lot more kids from high-income families attending these schools than you'd expect. And that's not necessarily a direct preference for high-income families. It's driven by indirect preferences in three different ways that disproportionately benefit high-income families. It's driven by legacy preferences in admissions, recruited athlete preferences in admissions, and from the non-academic features of applications like the extracurriculars that you do, the personality that comes through in an essay, uh, what you might call the private school polish, because it often comes from students at private schools that, again, students from high-income families are benefiting from. So we have more high-income students at these schools than you'd expect. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because these schools are really transformational in the way that they affect students' long-term outcomes. Students who attend these uh, very few schools, even relative to attending the very best public schools in the country, they're 60% more likely to be in the top 1% of the income distribution. They're twice as likely to attend uh, one of the most selective graduate schools. And they're three times more likely to have uh, what we classify as a prestigious uh, job at, uh, at a prestigious firm. These are some of the top ranked not only law firms, financial firms, consulting firms, but also lower earning occupations like medical research, universities, nonprofits, really the types of positions that lead to leadership and influence in society. And so putting it all together, uh, it matters because who the students are at these universities really determines who are uh, the leaders of society of of tomorrow. And we want to make sure that we're pulling from as broad of a pipeline uh, when we do that as possible. Okay, really interesting, meaty paper. Children from families of the top 1%, twice as likely to get into an Ivy Plus college. So that's Ivy League colleges, Stanford, MIT, Duke, and Chicago. And there's these three key factors that give this 
advantage. And I think it's important to note they're uncorrelated or negatively correlated, if barely, with post-college outcomes. And another really interesting finding here, perhaps one of the main ones, while attending an Ivy Plus college has small effects on average earnings, attending an Ivy Plus increases students' chances of reaching the top 1% of earnings, like you said, by 60% and doubles their chances of elite graduate schools, triples their chances of working in prestigious firms. So really, a lot of this is about funneling into the elite. But nonetheless, as you point out in the paper, these 12 colleges, they represent about half a percent of students. You know, community colleges obviously affect so many more. It might be fair to be concerned about the unfairness for these students, but given the scale, why should we be concerned about this elite funnel when it's so small at the end? I think that um, there's a couple reasons you should be concerned anyway. Uh, one of them is that even though, as you say, uh, Ivy Plus graduates are about, they're 0.8% of all students who attend colleges in the country. It's a very small percentage. And yet they disproportionately occupy positions of power and influence in higher earning positions. So they're a quarter of all journalists at major newspapers. They're a quarter of all U.S. senators. They're 71% of the past Supreme Court justices since Thurgood Marshall uh, went to undergraduate institutions at one of the 12 Ivy Plus colleges. Uh, and they're, you know, one in seven, roughly Fortune 500 CEOs. And so if we care about leadership, and these are the halls of power in U.S. society, these people are disproportionately having the experience of attending an Ivy Plus college. And that means their perspective is skewed toward that. And if they're disproportionately coming from very high income families, they're also not thinking about working class Americans, Americans all across the country. And so even though it's a small number, it's a tremendously influential number of people. And so therefore, we should care about it. One interesting thing in the paper is that relative to test scores, so you control for test scores across the board, applicants who are most disadvantaged by the current system may not be the ones we first expect, right? It seems like the lowest income students actually have relatively good rates of admittance given test score controls. The current system seems to primarily disadvantage upper middle class or middle class students. So making the admissions fairer could change the elite but might only rebound to these upper middle class families. Do you think that would really change the constitution of the elite in fundamental ways? I do. I think that, so you're absolutely right that students from low income families do actually have somewhat higher admissions rates than students from middle and upper middle income families. In part, I think that's because colleges pay a lot more attention directly to uh, thinking about uh, making sure they're recruiting students from low-income families. But in part, I think it's because counterintuitively, students from low-income families benefit from some of these same preferences that help high-income families. And so they're, they're not as likely to be legacy students or recruited athletes. But if you look at the types of schools that low-income students at this extremely high level of academic achievement are attending, these schools are actually doing a, a better job in the sense that admissions rates at these elite colleges are, in fact, higher for the types of schools where low-income students are attending than at schools where, uh, you know, you're kind of broad-based, you know, like affluent but not super high-income families are, are attending. And so uh, I, I actually think it comes back to the same set of factors at the end where low-income students, they maybe have more of a story to tell in admissions. 
and more admissions counselors to help them tell that story where uh, many middle income and upper middle income students just don't have either of those two things, at least in a way that's currently being recognized in the process. So these Ivy Plus institutions, all of them claim to be need blind, right? Which means they don't necessarily look at your finances. So if that's the case, how does such a major advantage happen? So now let me tell you what I think is going on. So um, as you said, many um, admissions offices are need blind. Some of them weren't during this period, but most, most of them are now, all of them are now. And so what that means is that they're looking at applicants. And as John said at the very beginning, this isn't a direct preference for high. It's not like anybody wants that outcome to happen. But the way it works in the admissions process is, you know, most schools practice holistic admissions. And so it's not just grades and test scores. It's a variety of other things. And so the question is, you know, there's so much talent in the world, a place like Harvard or Brown, where both of us work. They have so many more deserving applicants with very high academic credentials than they can admit. So how do you stand out from the crowd? And if you're low income, you stand out from the crowd because you've suffered serious hardship and you can talk about it on your personal essays, et cetera. And there are ways of letting admissions committees know that actually it's been a lot harder for you to get to where you are than for many other people. So that stands out. And if you're very, very high income, I think this is something people haven't fully appreciated. Um, you can enroll your child in, in hard to play sports at an early age and hire private coaches and have them on club teams. You can um, hire an admissions coach to help you craft a distinctive application profile that helps you stand out. You can participate in very unusual extracurricular activities, national debate club things, and so on. And all those things tend to be associated with privilege. And so you money kind of buys you distinctiveness, buys you a way to stand out from the crowd. So that's what I think is happening behind the scenes is that I don't think the admissions officers are doing it on purpose. I think they don't actually know whether a family makes $300,000 a year or $30 million a year because neither one of those families qualifies for financial aid in most cases. And so they just are, even though they may be somewhat aware of this, I think it's just easy to see how the very high income families with the most resources who compete the hardest can, can buy a way to stand out. So you could see a world where people would criticize these admissions programs and say, well, this is just sort of a jerry-rigging to say, well, we're need blind, but actually we want wealthy students and we have ways to get at that without actually looking at it. But what you're saying is a theory that makes more sense, that it's actually easier for these students at the very high end of the income spectrum to stand out and to stand out in their applications. And John, as to what you were saying, actually, if you're at the low income end of the spectrum, you also have sort of an advantage from a very different source. And that's why you see something of a gulf in this sort of middle class, upper middle class zone. Is that right? I think that's right. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that, that Dave said that I just want to reiterate because it's so important the reason why schools went to need blind admissions is that they didn't want to be making admissions decisions on the basis of, well, we can't let someone in because they can't pay full tuition. And as he said, these schools all now have need blind admissions. And more than that, admissions officers and the whole process, you know, they're very sincere and they're thoughtful and they're doing their best to find these kids and sort through them who are really extraordinary. I think what's hard, though, especially on these non-academic aspects of application, to understand quite just how much of what they're looking for can result from the fact that these students are coming from a quite privileged background. So just you know, for instance, like I have no reason to believe that when coaches recruit squash players for the squash team. They're trying to find the best squash players they can and have the best squash team they can. Like they're not trying to 
you know, recruit high-income students just for the sake of it. But if high-income students are the ones who know what squash is, who grow up around squash courts and who attend schools for high school that have squash programs, they're going to be the ones who are at that level to be the best squash players to recruit by the time you get to the end of high school. And then there's, again, there's nothing against having a squash team at a university. We just need to recognize that things like this and, and so many other things come with a cost that when you have that, you're going to have a less socioeconomically diverse group of students on campus. So you identify this gap between the top 1% and sort of the middle class controlling for test scores, but you also decompose that into three main components. And we've mentioned them a couple of times. Dave, can you just lay out what that decomposition looks like and how they rank? Sure. So um, first of all, we estimate that there are about, in a typical Ivy Plus college class of 1,650 students, there are about 157, so a bit less than 10%, quote unquote, extra students from the top 1% of the income distribution. And that's relative to an application process where we just took people based on test scores. So if you just admitted based on achievement, you'd have 157 fewer top 1% families than you actually do. And then of that 157, a bit more than 100 is admissions. There's a little bit more that's application and matriculation, which is among those who are admitted, do you choose to attend? So that might have something to do with financial aid, but those are relatively small. It's a little more than 100 in admissions. And of that, about a bit less than half, about 45, is legacy uh, applicants. And then another decent-sized chunk, about equal in size, are um, recruited athletes, as John mentioned. And again, it's key to think, like, why are legacies and recruited applicant, re- recruited athletes um, leading to more high-income students? It's because they are higher income than the rest of the student body. So athletes are about 15% of high-income families at these colleges and a bit more than 5% of low- and middle-income families. And so they are disproportionately coming from the top end, and so are legacies. And then the last chunk, as John mentioned earlier, is the students with very high non-academic ratings. Think about extracurriculars, community service, leadership, things like that. And those families, as John mentioned, tend to be in private, non-religious, fairly exclusive high schools. And when you say legacy, I think that this is a really interesting thing to point out. Legacy means, well, your parents went to this Ivy Plus school, not a Ivy Plus school, this Ivy Plus school. And therefore, and and this is not part of the need blind. They're not legacy blind. It's very clear when you're a legacy student. And that might be part of the reason that there's such a direct line here. And look, the legacy admissions policies have really taken it on the chin in the past couple of months in the press and on Twitter and in these conversations. But legacy status is the largest part of this decomposition. Do I have that right? You do, although I think it's worth mentioning that if you, you know, we have some simulations of this in the paper, if you just got rid of legacy preferences and you, and you had business as usual, you had nothing else, it wouldn't make that much of a dent. Why? Because of these other factors and because, look, not all legacies are in the top 1%. They're more likely to be, but not all of them are. And then there's quite a few families from the top 1% at these colleges who are not legacies. And so um, it is important and it is very hard to defend and it's a clear target. All those things are true, but I think it's also important to recognize this is a much more systemic problem, this issue of overrepresentation of very high-income families in Ivy Plus colleges. You mentioned high schools, right? So I want to push on that a little bit. I spent a lot of time thinking about K-12, right? So, John, you distinguish non-religious private schools from religious, which I understand, but there's... There's another player, it seems to me, that's these high schools and especially these elite high schools, college counselors. Their job is to pave the way for students to match 
to universities and right their best matches for the college counselors are probably Ivy plus. How much do you think that plays in this sort of production function? I think it's important. First, just directly, we can see that when schools evaluate the letters from guidance counselors, they're much stronger when they're coming from these private non-religious schools, right? These are often schools where not only do the college counselors have specific expertise in working with these very elite colleges, they often were admissions officers at these colleges earlier in their careers. They have many fewer students to work with as well, right? In some large public high schools, there might be 700 students for one college counselor. And at these private non-religious schools, uh, you know, that ratio might be as small as, you know, 50 to one or something like that. And then I think just, you know, even beyond the specific role of the college counselors playing, these schools know what they're doing. They're set up in a way to help students not only reach that level of academic achievement that's going to be necessary, whomever you are, to get into one of these schools, but to encourage the students to really develop that non-academic side of their application as well. And even at some of the very high quality public schools that are in relatively affluent neighborhoods, even there, there's not necessarily the focus in the college counseling process and you know, in the high school more generally on really targeting those very elite private schools at the, at the very top of the selectivity distribution. There's often, in fact, more of a focus on making sure that the college going rate more generally is high at these high schools because that's often something that the state's uh, keep track of. And so that instead, you know, there's a focus on making sure that students, are they going to community college? Are they going to more open access four-year schools? There's not quite that same laser focus on these uh, highly selective private universities. So I'm sure you're both familiar. There was recently a big Supreme Court case on affirmative action, and that case was largely motivated by the fact that Asian American applicants got into Harvard at much lower rates than one might expect based on their test scores. How much do you think that this middle-class phenomenon or gap that you describe in the paper might explain some of what's going on in that case? Sure. So in our paper, just to be really clear, we did not take on the role of race. And we did that for, for really one main reason, which is that many other scholars have done that. The thing that we can really add here is our the detailed tax data, which gives you a picture of how things are affected by income. So we didn't take on the situation of race. I can tell you that as a sort of general statement, I think you should think about these things as operating together side by side. So all of the patterns that we studied by income generally hold within race as well. And so the advantages for um, high income applicants will be, you know, forced to, within the group of students of color, within the group of white students and so on. So we didn't take that on, but I think you could, you could, again, you should think about these patterns as both independently contributing to these schools being uh, a lot less diverse um, on income grounds and maybe in the future less diverse on racial grounds because of the Supreme Court's case decision. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that was our general conclusion. I don't know, John, if you want to add anything. Yeah. I mean, I want to say two things. Uh, first, I do think there's a connection between the particular factors identified in that SFFA case as potentially driving some of the disparate admissions rates for um, Asian American students, uh, being the role of these non-academic factors in admissions. 
you know, again, it, it's like coming through, I think, in, in, in somewhat of a different way in different uh, contexts, but it's a very similar high-level thing where certain students are excelling in these non-academic factors in a way that leads to much, much higher admissions rates. The other thing I think that's worth saying is that while it may be some of the same underlying drivers, socioeconomic diversity is much more separate from racial diversity at these universities than you might think just by looking out in society, right? So within society, there's a tremendous correlation between race and income. And in some sense, it's going to be very difficult to think about economic inequality without thinking about racial inequality in the reverse. Now, that's still true when you look among the students who are you know, at this you know, incredibly high level of academic achievement, but it's, uh, it's much less the case. And what that ends up resulting in is uh, you know, the, the students of color that these schools are admitting, they are more socioeconomically diverse than the, uh, the rest of the student body, but not by as much as you might expect. And so what that means is that, for instance, just getting rid of legacy preferences, just doing some of these things that are focused on socioeconomic stuff, that's not going to directly lead to restoring the type of racial diversity that some of these schools are seeking. You know, but, but at the same time, it also, I think, opens up the possibility for thinking about socioeconomic diversity in a way that these schools really can broaden who's on campus uh, now that they're trying to think about uh, diversity in a little bit of a broader way following the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, let me make one more point too, Nat, if I, if I can. And that is, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, we've been working on this paper for a long time, more than five years. And so we had targeted income diversity long before um, the court case was an issue. And we targeted it because if you just think about what, what we're showing here, I mean, I think everybody would agree, including many people who are very concerned about um, the Supreme Court's decision, that if what we had was a campus that was racially diverse, but had was only only consisted of very high income students, we wouldn't really have a truly diverse campus. And so we think, look, what can we contribute here? Shining a spotlight on income disparities in Ivy Plus colleges is really important to do as well. So that's kind of how we, we think about it. Okay. I have a question on the counterfactual. Let's say that we can change these admissions processes to not have these let's call them inappropriate preferences. What do you say to the likelihood that, you know, look, elites are going to elite. I mean, elites are good at maintaining their elite status. Dave, what do you say to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that in one sense, you're right that, you know, if you, if you have a lot of money, there's almost nothing you'd rather buy than admission for one of your children to one of these schools. And so we all have to understand that people are going to try extremely hard to work within whatever system exists to gain advantages for their children. And like, in some sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we just have to design a system that is sensitive to the many, many things that we as a society want these colleges to accomplish. And, and, you know, they're in a tough spot, like whatever, whatever system we have, people are going to be, some people are going to be upset with it. So I really am sympathetic to what Ivy plus colleges are trying to do. However, I think, you know, that's why I think if nothing else, the fact that um, what's been happening has created such enormous income disparities that we show in our paper suggests that we haven't been paying enough attention to income diversity in these colleges. And so we hope, if nothing else, our results will shine a light on that and, and help colleges consider it along with many other factors. And I think the last thing I'd say on it, Nat, is 
Um, one of the things we talk about is like, is there a supply side problem? Meaning like, are there actually enough low and middle income academically talented kids to fill these classes? The answer is definitely yes. Is the country's a very big place. The world's an even bigger place. There are lots and lots of low and middle income students who are academically highly, highly qualified and could come to these schools and could become future leaders. So it's not so much about, you know, we don't want these schools to be elite anymore. It's that they can be elite while also being income diverse. And that would be a good thing for society, we think. So the argument that where would we get future leaders if we didn't take them disproportionately from our legacies, you don't think that holds necessarily? I don't. I mean, again, it's not anti-legacy. There's nothing wrong with having some legacy students at colleges. It's more just, you know, we should spread spread it out a bit. And as we show in our paper, it's not even clear that the the legacy students on average do as well as the non-legacy students at these colleges. So there's not even really like a, you know, we want better outcomes kind of argument for it either. Let me just, I think one of the things we show in our paper that helps maybe get from the high level goal that Dave was talking about down to like, what is it that you do in the admissions process? You know, once you get rid of some of these things to make sure that they don't creep back in in other places, I think a broad way to summarize much of what we find is that it seems to be easier for admissions officers to evaluate students on the academic side more in a context that they're going to school or the neighborhood that they're growing up in, much more so than on the non-academic side. So let me give you an example. As part of this project, we spent a lot of time kind of in admissions offices, making sure we were really understanding what they were doing. And it's not uncommon to hear a discussion of a you know, very strong student that will say, look, you know, here's a student and you know, they've only taken one or two AP tests, which is kind of below average for the type of students that they're typically admitting. But they did that from a school that only, say, offered one or two AP classes. And so here's a student who's really taking advantages of the opportunities that are available to them. Sure, maybe they don't have the top line numbers that are quite where a student is from uh, you know, one of these other uh, more privileged high schools. But there's an understanding that this is a student who did what they could in the context. And in fact, when you look in the data, comparing students with two similar test scores, we don't find any consistent differences across the income distribution in their more nuanced, holistic academic rating. And we don't find any of the same differences across high schools private non-religious high schools do not lead to higher non-academic ratings for students, again, comparing students with the same test score. It's totally different when looking at these non-academic characteristics, though. And I think that's just because it's so much harder to see a student who's done probably something that really is legitimately pretty exciting and interesting and distinctive, and to separate that, what part of that is really coming from the student themselves, and what part of it is reflecting the opportunities that were available to them. I think it's just much harder for uh, everyone to sort out these two things for these non-academic stuff. And so I think uh, not that we should be admitting students solely on the basis of test score or something, but a relatively greater focus on academic characteristics, I think is helpful in admitting students from uh, not just more socioeconomically diverse backgrounds, but really more diverse backgrounds of all sorts. And John, correct me if I'm wrong, but if we could actually look at the athletic value of applicants or the the personality traits, these other things in better context, 
well, that would also do a better job. But if the only glass that we can look through to look at that is necessarily skewed, then there's no saving them. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think partly it's just about uh, trying to be as aware as possible of what's going on. And so even you know when you're reading what is legitimately an amazing recommendation letter from a guidance counselor, just taking a moment to realize that that's somebody who maybe had you know a couple days to write this letter in a way that a student's letter from a different school might have been written in an hour because that's all the time that the guidance counselor could spend on that one student. Um, I think there are lots of uh, kind of micro interventions that people have played with to make particular facts salient on a student's application in the admissions process. What's the order in which you present information, for instance, when guidance, uh, when admissions officers are starting to read the file. I think there are lots of things one can do here so that it's not a black and white choice between do you consider non-academic stuff at all or do we just entirely get rid of it? I think that there are ways that we can continue to include this type of thing if schools want, but to do it in a more balanced way. All right. So this is the report card. We have a section called grade it. Are you ready? Yep. Let's do it. Fire away. Dave, the financial practicality of majoring in English. Um, D plus. I, you, you asked the financial. So I'm not trying to denigrate majoring in English. I think it's a fine major, but I think that the job prospects for an English major are not that great. And so I think you have to give it an honest read. People have to know what they're getting into. So D plus meaning you still have a college degree, but relative to other choices, it's near the bottom of what you could earn. All right, John, the effectiveness of gerrymandering. B plus political parties can do quite a bit, but they don't understand quite how much things can change over time and how quickly they can change. So sometimes you overdo it in the moment and then three years later, it turns the other way. Dave, the informativeness of high school GPAs. For admissions, I would say the informativeness is a B minus. Obviously, you can tell the difference between a very high GPA and a very low GPA, but at some schools, grade inflation is such that there's not a lot of differentiation between people. And so because of the restricted range, it's not as good of a variation. And because, you know, some high schools weight GPAs when you take an AP class, some don't. Now, admissions offices are somewhat aware of these things, but it's hard to compare across schools. And so they can be pretty noisy measures. And the higher stakes they are, the more noisy they become and the more grade inflation there is. So B minus now, but likely to get worse, especially if more schools go test optional. John, travel teams. I'd give it a C minus. There's just this rat race among activities more generally for kids, but sports especially. I mean, Dave lives in Boston and I think like twice a month, he texts me because he's parking across the street from my house in Providence because his daughters are at a swim meet at Brown. And I just think that we could get students and children more generally about the same in terms of enjoyment and learning out of these activities, just while taking it down three notches in terms of intensity. I agree. As, as far as parent sports go, I wouldn't put swimming near the top, sitting in a hot you know, natatorium, watching your kids swim for a minute and a half, and then sitting around waiting for the next event is not, not my ideal way to spend a Saturday or a Sunday, but this is, this is the world that I live in at least. And they do love the team, at least for now. 
I'm a wrestling dad, Dave. So I, I, I know the, I know the feeling Dave red shirting. Yeah. So red shirting uh, for listeners who don't know is the practice of voluntarily holding your child back one grade. So this is more commonly done among boys so that your kid can be old for their grade rather than young for their grade. I give it a, so a grade for individual parents, I think, I don't know what grade to give it because in some situations it really makes sense for an individual, you know, some kids just aren't ready and some really are. And so it's an individual decision for society. I give it, I give it a D minus. Why? Because somebody has got to be the youngest in the class. And if everybody ends up holding their kid back a year, then you're right back where you started. And um, all else equal, it's better for kids to be in school earlier. They learn more. People will compete very heavily to get their kids into really good schools. Why? Because you want good peers. One way to get good peers is to make sure the kids are older. And that means enrolling your kid when they're younger because they learn more at any given age. And so it's a kind of zero sum competition that doesn't really benefit anybody. Fair enough. John, social mobility in America. D plus, there are pockets of America that uh, we found in the data that actually do offer tremendous opportunities for upward mobility for children. But when you take a step back, the U.S. is among the least upwardly mobile societies across the developed world, despite everyone's connection of the American dream, thinking that it might be one of the more mobile societies. So not good. Can, can I interject on that one? Can I give it, can I agree with John for relative mobility, the chances that you'll kind of go up the class distribution, but give it a better grade for absolute mobility? It, GDP growth in the US is much greater than in Europe over the past decade or so. And so in, in terms of absolute living standards, I think we're not doing as badly. That's fair. Although I, I will say that overall GDP growth in the US is stronger, but the GDP growth that we've had over the last 40 years has been highly skewed towards the top of the income distribution. And so I think if you are a child growing up in poverty, both your chances of escaping poverty relatively in the distribution and just your chances of having a higher standard of living due to higher incomes more generally are pretty low at the bottom of the income distribution. Dave, ROI for bachelor's degrees. The ROI for bachelor's degrees is much higher than people think. And uh, so I'll give that, I'll give that grade, I'll say it's definitely underrated. I'll give it an A, actually. And one of the reasons is that even if you do major in English, the return to a college degree is much greater later in life than it is earlier in life. So it roughly doubles over the life cycle. What I, what I mean by that is college graduates, when they're 25, earn about 30% more than high school graduates when both are 25. When both are 55, it's about 60% more. And why is that? Because a college degree is a ticket to a professional occupation where there's wage growth and promotion possibilities, whereas jobs for high school graduates tend to be dead-end jobs where there's not much possibility for mobility. Now, that's obviously a generalization. There's a lot of um, cases where that's not true. But I think people who are looking at, is this degree going to benefit me next year, are missing a big part of the picture. All right. We'll go out on an A. Back to the paper. Test scores, you find, are actually pretty strong predictors of post-college outcomes, much more so than GPA. But over the last decade, we've seen college admissions offices move to test optional, not just SAT, but also AP tests. Do you think we should put more trust in tests, John? So you're right. In our paper, we show that test scores are probably the strongest correlates of long-term outcomes on an individual's application file. And just to be very clear, this is about the predictive power within parent income background, race, and gender. So, you know, think about two 
Latina applicants who come from the same family background. This is a comparison about how will one with a 1500 do later in life compared to, to one who let's say has a 13 or a 1200. And that's, that difference is really big. I also understand people's concerns about standardized tests because it is true that there are really large differences in test scores. I think part of that may reflect the fact that students from high-income families, students uh, who are white, often take the test more. So there, there may be a little bit of the same ability to kind of game the system. But I think a lot of it, a lot of those disparities reflect the fact that school quality in K through 12 is very unequal. The environments in which these children are growing up are very different. And, I, you know, given the enormous amount of inequality in this country, I, I think we get exactly what we would expect in terms of students are just in a very different place by the time they get to, you know, age 17 or 18 when they're taking these tests. And so our point is not that these test scores are necessarily strictly unbiased predictors of outcomes, but that they seem to not only do a lot better in predicting outcomes, and also they seem to be a lot less biased than many of these other alternative facets of an application that uh, schools may be tempted to put weight on if they don't have that type of, of data on each student. And so, yes, I think I expect that, that we'll see some schools uh, returning, maybe not requiring uh, tests, but kind of strongly advising students to provide tests. I think we'll see more uh, schools returning to that uh, in the next few years. Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And it's similar for the SAT. It's not a great way to evaluate people, but it's much better than the alternatives we have. It definitely has bias in it. There's definitely issues with it. But what John is saying, and he's totally right, is that when you compare it to the other things that are on applications, it might it might actually be the best thing we have. Yeah. In the paper, you talk about that bias. You say that the test scores of students from high income families might be biased upward relative to their latent potential because they have test prep or other opportunities. Do we see that reflected in the data relative to students' outcomes? Do the non-one percenters have an edge on the one percenters making the same score? Well, that's a tricky comparison to make, Not exactly. What we do find is that actually the low and middle income students who have really high SAT scores do very well, do about as well as the high income applicants. So that suggests that, you know, and that's despite all the other advantages that the high income kids have. And so it's a little hard to know, you know, you're not holding everything else fixed in their lives. And so it's hard to say, but certainly it looks good on that, on that metric. I think the other thing is there's a lot of evidence for this gaming that happens that you would need to account for. So for example, our colleague, Josh Goodman has a really nice paper showing what happens when people retake, basically like retaking the SAT multiple times increases your score. The SAT went to a super scoring method, which basically ignores all the retaking and takes the maximum. That's the kind of thing that is biased toward privileged people who can afford to pay the, the fee and take the test eight times or whatever. So it would be better to report all the scores instead of just super scoring. And there's lots of things like that, that either colleges can ask for or that people can do to try to, to try to like in a very transparent way, account for some of these sources of bias. So let me ask a question about the production function of elite colleges and if this emissions pattern may actually be part of the production function, right? So a long time ago when Malcolm Gladwell was uh, writing for the New Yorker, like as a staff writer, he had this piece on admissions and he said, elite schools like any luxury brand are an aesthetic experience, an exquisitely constructed fantasy of what it means to be an elite. And they've always been mindful of what must be done to maintain 
that experience. And there's some folks who have said, well, look, you can go just for test scores, hardcore test scores, right? And you can actually erode that elite image because to put it crudely, you might get a bunch of nerds instead of a bunch of elite students to sort of maintain that ladder. And so if it helps elite students, but also helps middle-class students to go to an elite institution where there are other peer elites, you might actually put a drag on the Harvardness of Harvard or the Dukeness of Duke. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think there's some truth to it. It's definitely flowery prose that Malcolm Level writes, and it's hard to argue with in spirit. I do think, though, we're, you know, we're, I don't think anyone's talking about drastically changing the character of these institutions. I think we're talking about a bunch of changes, all of which individually would be huge lifts, but collectively could make a difference. I also think that, you know, look, you're talking to a couple of nerds here. You know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we had a few more nerds on college campus, in my opinion. And I think sometimes today's nerds are tomorrow's leaders. We do see that. So I don't think it would be a bad thing. I'm not sure that we want a kind of intergenerational aristocracy in America. I think we'd rather have some combination of, it's not, nothing wrong with schools teaching non-academic things and like teaching, you know, like having some culture. But I, to me, that's uh, a balance that I think should tilt a bit more towards academics. And so maybe that reflects my personal perspective as an academic myself. That's fair. But I think what we show is that like you could actually do that uh, and make the class more income diverse and not really suffer in terms of outcomes. And so, you know, we don't have any moral high ground on whether that's a good thing. That's something for us to decide as a society collectively, but we show that it's possible. And I think it's important to point out not all Ivy Plus colleges have this same boost, right? MIT and Chicago appear to have less preferences compared to, say, Stanford and Duke, which have much stronger preferences. Do you think that's a matter of differences in admissions preferences or like what might explain that, John? So the examples that you gave are actually really interesting. One of the things we do in the data are that we not only put out these overall attendance profiles for these schools, so you can see how much more likely high-income students are to be attending a given school than low- or middle-income students, but you can also see how much of that at each school is coming from application, which is really about the students' preferences about where they might be interested in going to school, and how much of it is coming from admissions and matriculation, uh, most of which we think is coming from the school's choices and admissions. And so if you take a school like MIT, overall, you're right. High-income students are almost no more likely to be attending than low-income students. An important part of that, though, is that high-income students are actually less likely to be applying to MIT than middle-income students. Uh, and you see the same thing in Chicago as well. When you look at the admissions part, uh, or admissions plus matriculation part uh, at MIT, that is uh, among the least unequal among these Ivy Plus institutions, but it's no longer totally flat. It's no longer off the distribution at the bottom. And so I think that at a place like MIT, they don't have legacy admissions. They have a division three sports program. And uh, you know, I don't know exactly how much weight they put on it, but it's gonna be less than at the, you know, like in the Ivy League, which are uh, division one programs. They obviously are looking for a particular type of student. And that's clearly part of what's going on but still, you do see that high-income students are more likely to be getting into MIT uh, than, than low-income students are in, in matriculating. Uh, but you know, if you look more generally across institutions, you do tend to see that these schools that stand out for different admissions policies 
they look different in the data. So it's like MIT in Chicago that you mentioned, uh, Caltech, Pomona. Uh, these are all schools that are doing something a little bit different, and you can you can tell in the data. Dave, you've been writing quite a bit this week on your Substack, right? Which is forked lightning. One line that you wrote today that caught my eye, and, and I'm trying to shift towards some solutions. Ivy Plus colleges could achieve more socioeconomic diversity and better average outcomes. There is no equity efficiency trade-off. When I hear a sentence like there is no equity efficiency trade-off, my ears peak up. What's the solution you were referring to? Yeah, so you know, I, I use the phrase equity efficiency trade-off because that's a phrase common commonly heard by economists that it isn't in, in designed to pique your interest. And I'm taking a little bit of poetic license. I don't actually mean efficiency because efficiency has a you know technical economic term. But what I really mean in spirit by that is that if what you're concerned about with um, any potential change that balances the class on income, that makes the class more income diverse, you might be concerned, well, maybe we're going to have to sacrifice in terms of academic or non-academic quality. So we're going to get um, a class of students who aren't prepared to do the work or who aren't as aristocratic or whatever. And one of the things we do in the paper is we look at, you know, we don't just use the data from the um, the several Ivy Plus colleges where we have internal records. We also use all of the testing data. So the universe of SAT and ACT takers for a bunch of years. And we can look at that and think of that as like the reserve pool of people who could come to a school like this. How many, how many low and middle income kids are there out there who could actually do the work, who have those kind of academic credentials? And the answer is just like eight times as many as, as you would need for any pretty large change in income diversity. So there's really a very, I mean, it's just a big country and there's a really a lot of potentially very qualified students. And as we mentioned earlier in this kind of outcomes test that we do in the paper, we say, well, for whom are the benefits of attending an Ivy plus college the biggest? And they're actually like for legacies, the benefit is like actually no different than non-legacies. It's even a bit smaller. And students who have high non-academic ratings don't particularly do better after college than students who have lower non-academic ratings. And athletes don't particularly do better or worse. The one category that really stands out is academic ratings. The students who get the most from attending a school like this are the ones with high academic ratings. So then we say, well, look, there's a lot of low and middle income students out there who have high not, who have high academic ratings, but don't have the other benefits associated with privilege and so don't get admitted. So if we did admit them, we'd have better outcomes. More of them would get to the top 1%. More of them would go to top graduate schools and the class would be more income diverse. So no trade-off. So to both of you, last question, John, first to you, as far as low hanging fruit, I don't know if there is any, but just as far as directions on solutions, where would you look to? Lotteries, expansion, what? I'll give two. I think that when you look at admissions at these schools, there's relatively little focus on socioeconomic diversity. And whether that's about removing some of these particular admissions practices that benefit high income students or just trying to put more emphasis on getting students from low and middle income backgrounds, students from public schools, however you want to phrase it. As Dave said, there's a lot of room to move here uh, so that these schools could admit a lot more students before we run out of such highly academically qualified students, before we run out of financial aid. There's just a lot of room for improvement here. And then the second thing, yeah, these schools have not gotten any larger for the most part for 50 years. And uh, I think that one thing you take away from our paper is that students who attend these schools really benefit. Now, could you do the same level of education, have that same college uh, environment with 10,000 students per incoming first year cohort? Probably not. But could you go up from 1,600 to 2,000? Probably. 
Now that's, you know, you have to have space to house these students. You got to maybe hire more professors. But I think that's a way that these schools could broaden the set of students that are benefiting uh, from what's going on on campus. Dave? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I want to end on a note of agreement. I agree with John. Like, I think that expansion is, look, is something I would really like to see. And I know it's costly. But if you actually gave me a choice between, well, you can eliminate all these preferences for the rich, but you keep the class size the same, or you keep the preferences, but we expand our class by 10% and we fill all those extra slots with middle, low and middle income kids. Let the legacy applicants have the spots. Let the recruit athletes have their spots. I'd prefer the second option because I really believe in what we're doing at Harvard and at other, other Ivy Plus institutions. I think we're providing a good education. We just can't do it for enough people and we especially can't do it for enough low and middle income kids. And so if, I, if we believe in the product, why not expand? Even if it's costly. And if that means we have to admit some higher income students to fund it, I would do that because I think the, the hardest challenge in all of this is that it's so zero sum. It's such a brutal competition for so few spots. So let's let's relax the constraint a little bit and let's provide more people the kind of education that can be truly transformative. I don't pretend it's easy, but if I were an Ivy Plus, plus college president, which I'm not, uh, that's the kind of thing I'd be looking really hard at, both for kind of practical reasons to get the public off my back, but also I think it's the right thing to do. And I think it would actually make for a, a even more vibrant campus than we already have. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Matt Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, David Deming and John Friedman. We'll include a link to Diversifying Society's Leaders, as well as some of David and John's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>